Hello there. Welcome back to the Will and Rob Show. It is great to be with y'all this day, just a couple days away from Christmas, and we are very excited um, to celebrate the season with y'all. My name is Robert. I'm Director of Communications for Ministry of State, and I'm here as always with my co-host, colleague, dear friend, Will Stockdale. Will, it's good to see you. Hey, it is great to see you as well, even though we're not in person. I feel that as this episode is going to be released on December 23rd, you know, there's just an extra level of Christmas magic that is being channeled here that makes us feel like we're in greater proximity than is actually the case. It's true. And we have a, we have a very special Christmas gift for our dear listeners. And that is that we are joined by our other good friend and colleague, Adam Smith. Adam, welcome back to the Will and Rob show. All right. Thanks guys. I, I don't know if I've ever been described quite that, that way. I hope people you know, experience my presence as a gift. You are a gift, Adam. Well, thanks, Robert. Yeah, I'll say just to encourage you, Adam and Robert, I've never (laughs) been called that. I've never been (laughs) that way, that's for sure. But what a wonderful gift. You just gave someone a person. I mean, that's kind of, you know, the the, the presence of someone. I'm blushing a little bit. Oh my gosh. (laughs) This is why we only do audio. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Mystery State has has had a very busy Christmas. We've had a Christmas party uh, with Faith and Law. Uh, which was a great time. Uh, We have been also working our way uh, through a special Advent series called The Politics of Christmas. And the brainchild for that project uh, was actually our friend Adam. And so we wanted to have Adam on the show uh, to talk a little bit about uh, the genesis of that project, uh, what what kind of brought you to, to think about Christmas in the lens of of politics and the different characters involved. And then we'll have some time. Each of us got to write a couple of devotionals, or in my case, I only got to write one, but I get it. Um, we'll, we'll get a chance to kind of go around the table and explain sort of what we were thinking as we were writing the different pieces. But Adam, kick us off. Tell us sort of how you came up with the idea of an Advent devotional series called The Politics of Christmas. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, you know, really, I think... Um, it's, it's kind of funny. I think we can really think about Christmas in these very kind of sweet sentimental terms. You know, we're thinking about, um, you know, Mary and the, and the child and the shepherds and, and just kind of have this, you know, peace on earth kind of sweet message about Christmas, uh, which all those things are true. Uh, and there's also kind of, you know, just the, the own kind of, our own kind of cultural traditions around Christmas. Um, it's easy to feel nostalgic or sentimental. And yet when you read scripture, there's, there's a lot of heavy political implications um, in terms of, um, you know, good and evil, but also we see right from the beginning kind of earthly confrontations happening with Herod committing infanticide, wanting to kill Jesus it's just from the beginning, there's all of this sort of drama that's playing out. Uh, and you dive into the prophecies of Jesus's birth, and you see that really it's a king that is promised, a deliverer, a messiah. And so the idea was just to kind of look at both the promises of Jesus and the claims of Jesus and sort of this, he is the king who's coming, um, who was promised. And that right from the start, uh, there are people who reject him, who want to kill him. Um, you know, 
whether that's Herod or right at the beginning of his ministry, it's Satan trying to tempt him. Uh, we just see right from the beginning of the moment Jesus steps foot on this planet, there are people out to get him. And so, uh, and really that's because of the claims of who Jesus is. And so there's, there's a lot of these sort of cosmic yet political factors playing out as we see um, the son of God being born. Yeah, it's, it's been such a great series to work through and, and definitely been very uh, helpful for me as I sort of revisited some of these passages that um, I haven't really spent as much time, you know, I hear them at Christmas, uh, but to really spend as much time studying them comprehensively, uh, the way that you've set it up uh, has been really, really beneficial. Um, the first devotional in the series was about the genealogy of Jesus uh, in Matthew 1. And uh, genealogies, you might think, aren't very fun things to write about. Um, but Will pulled that short straw, but uh, it was a great devotional uh, and was very uh, interesting and enlightening. Will, tell us about uh, what you learned as you were studying Christ's genealogy. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think I'm partial to Luke's genealogy than over Matthew's genealogy when comparing the two. The, those are the two gospels that include genealogies. Mark uh, doesn't because Mark begins um, with Jesus' ministry, uh, and then John obviously begins with that great prologue. But Matthew's genealogy, Luke's genealogy is different because it takes place at, at the end of the third chapter. And so you already have the birth of Jesus, you have John the Baptist preparing the way, and then you get this long, um, you get this long narrative of who Jesus is and his claim. And Luke does this astounding thing where he ends it with you know, it's son of, son of, son of, and then the last one is son of God. And um, what he's doing is he is introducing uh, a pretty profound uh, character on the scene of human history with Jesus. And he does this to reaffirm all that has been told within the first three chapters. And so this genealogy buttresses, supports, um, verifies and validates all that you've read so far. And then launches you the reader into the rest of the story of Jesus's ministry and ultimately his passion on the cross and resurrection. And so I think one of the things that's important with genealogies for us to understand um, is, is if you were, were to look at it closely and you were to compare the genealogy in Luke three to uh, the recording of like the Kings that show up or the historical characters that show up in the rest of the old Testament, you know, well, wait, they skipped some people. Why did he do that? Well, genealogies are crafted, not just because they're not just a family tree that looks to put in chronological um, genetic information, but rather they are um, verifying, showing what claims this particular individual has uh, in life, in the world. So when Luke constructs his a certain way, he takes it deliberately. Um, like I said, he ends with son of God. So he starts with Adam and then moves his way through David, for example. Okay, so now you have a kingly lineage that is going on in Jesus's life. And then you take it all the way up to Jesus. So you see Jesus is not only the son of God, but also the son of David, which interestingly enough is what Paul does in Romans 1 when he introduces his, his letter, uh, the great telling of the gospel, of, of what the fullest writing we have in, in scripture of what is the gospel. And so he puts those two together. And Luke does the same thing by introducing us to Jesus and all he will do to understand this is a, this is a uh, um, divine royal figure 
who is here and he is the fulfillment of messianic promises and he is the new rightful king all of the hopes that were built up and anticipated and desired for god's people luke is going to show are met in me and we get this when we go to for example luke 24 on the road to emmaus when he meets the 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 two people walking the resurrected christ tells them all that you've read and moses and the prophets is about me is about who i am and what i have done so not only does Luke center Jesus at this at, at, at the absolute z- ground zero of human history of this, this central point, uh, Jesus himself acknowledges that he is the the crux of all of all that human history is building up to and all that has come from. And I think that's one of the important things for us to understand in our faith is that you know sometimes we can say like in the Christmas in, in the Christian faith, Christmas Day is about God becoming man. And it's like, well, that's that's true, but that's almost a, a, a disservice to the people we're talking to. Is according to the Christian faith, uh, it is true for the whole world that Jesus is that, that the incarnation is God becoming man. We're we don't just believe in a faith that is just true to us among many. We the gospels don't allow us to do that. They tell us of the God man who is true for everyone and everywhere, um, and that's really good news. And and um, to stop rambling here, this is the story of, of God becoming man and a new king coming to town and uh, the politics of what that obviously means for us as Christian men and women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I wrote about the wise men and I was piggybacking off of the genealogy in Matthew one. And I think one of the things when you study the wise men, that's kind of, um, uh, just sort of obvious on the surface is that uh, you have uh, th- this account of Gentile men coming to uh, Israel in search for the promised king of, I- of Israel. Um, and uh, what do we kind of make of all that? And I, I-, I would actually argue that um, if you look at Matthew's gospel, Matthew is already sort of putting the hints together about why this story is important. Um, and if you look in uh, Matthew's genealogy, uh, it, it's pretty striking the number of women that he includes. If you look at Old Testament uh, genealogies, the, the moms are just not present. Uh, and so that, that Matthew takes the time to include four uh, is pretty impressive. And, and so you have Tamar, you have Rahab, uh, you have uh, Ruth and Bathsheba. And the thing that's striking about all four of those women is that they're likely Gentile women um, who are engrafted uh, into the nation of Israel and the people of God. And Matthew includes them in Christ's genealogy. And what that symbolizes is a fulfillment or a, uh, a pointing to a fulfillment of a promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12, that, uh, that through the nation of Israel, through the tribe of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. And so it, it reveals again, this reminder that the Israelites had forgotten at this point in their history, right? That, that, that their mission as the people of God was not just for themselves, uh, but was to to be a display people uh, for the entire world of who God is so that all may worship the one true God. Um, and so then immediately after this genealogy, you have the story of these, these three Gentile men coming to Israel. And I think what's so kind of striking is that you have a complete reversal of what's supposed to be happening, right? Israel is supposed to be the nation that's proclaiming the good news of the, uh, the living and true God to the nation or into the world. And here, Matthew has three Gentile men coming to Israel, to the king of to the king of Israel, to the the, the Jewish court, 
saying, hey, we've seen the signs like here, your promised king is is here. And uh, I think actually the 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 way that Herod and the and the Jewish people are not prepared um, is is kind of funny the way that, that Matthew paints it. It's this idea that they have just been really caught off guard, that they were not expecting uh, this promise. They were not uh, looking out for the promised king of Israel um, and uh, were neglecting uh, their uh, their call as God's people. Um, and so uh, it, really what we get is a, a pattern that I think I see throughout most of the New Testament, right? Whereas the people that should be uh, the... Um, uh, the most obedient, the people who should recognize the person and character of Jesus and, and worship him, um, fail to do so. And the people that we don't expect, the sinners, the tax collectors, uh, the Gentiles do, they're the first to uh, demonstrate faith. And so again, we have this, this pattern um, going over again. Uh, and really what, at the end of the day, kind of my conclusion um, was that, and this kind of leans into what, uh, what Adam wrote about with King Herod, is that you get this dark sense of irony where Jesus, who has come to the world to save the sons of Israel, I mean, these are the people that Herod um, uh, immediately uh, purges uh, because of the threat to his power. Um, and, and so the fact that Jesus is, survives that uh, by God's um, uh, providence, that he uh, uh, reaches his age, the age for his earthly ministry, uh, dies, and then is resurrected, uh, is, a, is a sign that um, uh, all the power of the civil authorities cannot thwart the mighty hand of God. Um, and so that Jesus really is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords uh, and no earthly power can um, overcome that. But Adam, that sort of transitions us into what you wrote about, which was um, Herod's response uh, to the birth of Jesus. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, I don't know if Will drew the short stick for getting the genealogy, or I drew it for getting, uh, you know, the passage about babies being killed. <laughs> you know, and I think the first thing I thought of with uh, this passage is just that I, I don't think I've ever heard a Christmas sermon on this particular passage. Uh, you know, it's not very uh, Christmassy in some way. Like we don't, it's not something we really want to think about. I don't. I don't think. And yet, um, you know, the first thing, just reading the passage that I thought was that this really does, um, <clears throat> it creates, I think it should create a sense of longing in our hearts that we live in a world where people in power can order a town to, uh, you know, for babies in a, a town to be killed. Um, and so you kind of get this sorrowfulness as you read the text um and and yet matthew is telling us that this is why jesus has come he has come to put an end uh to these types of things and so he says that um you know that this happened in order to fulfill uh, a, a specific word spoken by jeremiah in jeremiah 31 um you know, that it's like Rachel crying out for her children. And Rachel represents kind of the mother of all Israel. And so there's this sense that all of Israel is mourning because of these actions. And, and so really, you know, we dealt, I dealt in the devotional a little bit with just how Matthew uses um, 
the word fulfillment, that he's not just using the word fulfillment in this kind of, uh, you know, a past prediction has been, uh, has, has been realized kind of way, but he's really showing us that Jesus is fulfilling all of the old Testament, all the words spoken by the prophets, uh, that he's kind of the hidden meaning behind all of it. And so what Matthew's really trying to communicate to us is that, um, all of that pain, you know, that, uh, it was experienced by God's people is now, it now has an answer. Uh, and it's interesting, uh, you know, if you, the one, one thing about writing these devotionals is you have such limited space, but really, if you look at all of Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 is the new covenant, uh, text. And so this one verse about, you know, Rachel crying for her children, it's the only negative verse in the whole chapter. The rest is all about the promises of the Messiah. And so he's, Matthew's tying us to tying this event to that and saying all those promises are, are, you know, being fulfilled by Jesus. And so, uh, you know, if you're really looking close, um, and really diving in, especially to the Jeremiah text and seeing what Matthew's saying, he's really saying, Hey, you know, the kingdom of heaven has declared war against the powers of darkness. Uh, This is not okay. God has heard the cries of his people and he's doing something about it. And I think that's a a very powerful thing for us to be uh, meditating on this Christmas season uh, that yes, Christmas uh, is about peace on earth, but peace on earth can only happen when you confront evil. And that's exactly what the son of God um, has come to do or came to do. Right. And will you, you kind of had the last group of characters in the Christmas story. You had the story of the shepherds. Um, what are some of the things that we learn from their story? Yeah. So I think this is, I think we're going to send this one out next week, uh, next Tuesday. So I, I haven't written it yet. Um, but a couple thoughts I'll share. One is it was uh, it's a theme in scripture and it's a theme in the ancient Near East uh, for a king to be described as a shepherd. And so one of the ways that a good king would be described is as a good shepherd, someone who ruled over the flock, that is the people and took care of them. Um, Shepherds in practice, and you can relate this to shepherds as uh, uh, described as kings, is they were uh, hard work. Um, They're cunning, very smart. Uh, they had to keep an eye out on a lot of things uh, at any one time and keep the, this flock together. And they were responsible for the well-being of their flock, which uh, is comforting when we consider that Jesus says not one of them has been snatched out of my hand uh, and he holds on to us. And so I, I think, you know, on one side here, when we think about Jesus as shepherd, um, yes, he is uh, gentle and lowly of heart. He wants for us to come to, uh, he wants for us to come to him when we are weak, uh, for food, for safety, um, for nourishment, but he's also up to the task. I mean, he is incredibly competent for this. He knows what he is doing as the good shepherd. He is able and smart. And as we trust him with our lives, he knows where to take us when and how to keep us safe. Um, but you know, to bring this back, David was a shepherd, obviously. And 
Jesus descends from David's line. And so we again have this combination of this uh, royal um, motif here of him being the good shepherd king to guide and lead his people. Uh, another side, Luke, one of the things I love about Luke is he's a no-nonsense kind of guy, whereas uh, Matthew in his Beatitudes says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke just says, blessed are the poor. Uh, he has a real solid emphasis on um, the lowly and outcast. Uh, and these shepherds were definitely the blue collar portion of society. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, I remember Tom Holland in his book, The Forge of Christendom, he talks about all the anxiety that went on in the uh, in Europe around the millennium, around the first millennium, and the fears people had of, is this the end of the world? Because you had different competing traditions on what that means, that people are trying to interpret scripture and apply it. But one of the points that he made was that for the, the, the poor, for the oppressed, the needy, uh, that was a point of actually great excitement. Um, my goodness, the end of the world, the injustice, the, the indignity, the frustration is about to be done with? Bring it on. I'm ready for it. And so I think for these shepherds with who they are, uh, a king is here? No questions asked. A good king from God with angels telling me about it? I'm there. Uh, show me where to go. And I'm, I'm on my way. And they go and tell Mary. And there's just that beautiful passage of Mary just pondering these things in her heart. I mean, <laughs> imagine all that she had been told in her young life, just sitting there awing over what she was told. And um, so I, I love the story of the shepherds for those reasons. And we'll figure out how to tie this all in to a, a devotional. Um, but, but clearly they were uh, excited about this and that God chose to, again, he, he, he sent this message to wise men, um, prophet priests knew about it eventually when Jesus was presented at the temple and then um, shepherds as well. So you get all these spectrums of society that were included, but with the same message that there is a new King coming to the throne. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading uh, Will, your devotional on the shepherds and Adam, you're going to be sort of bringing up the rear and, and sort of putting a nice bow on top of everything um, with your <laughs> final devotional on uh, responding to Christmas, but we'll sort of wait uh, and and uh, uh, look forward to it um, and hear it then. Um, I think now we, we've done such a good job, I think, of, of, of rocking through the politics of Christmas in our Advent series um, and so much good theology and doctrine and biblical exegesis. Uh, but now uh, time to turn to something a little bit more lighthearted, a little more fun. Christmas is that time of the year. Uh, and, uh, Will, you had the great idea of having to sort of go around uh, and tell some of our favorite Christmas stories, but you sort of left it open-ended of exactly what you meant by that. Yeah, you know, I don't want to be discriminatory here based on the medium of the telling. Uh, if you have a favorite recording, I know that Adam is a great appreciator of um, like radio hour type shows. We would also know that there's great written stories, there's short stories, there's novels, um, Christmas songs tell stories. There is the phenomenal genre of movie, the Christmas romantic comedy that is ubiquitous now on uh, every streaming platform you could desire. So we wanted to uh, share a little bit about our favorite Christmas story. And it could even be a personal anecdote here. Um, 
and uh, that that was that was my thinking. You know, Adam has this brilliant brainchild of the politics of Christmas and how it fits with our ministry and working and serving on the hill and with scripture. And <laughs> mine is going to have to be uh, uh, favorite personal Christmas stories here. Well, well, why don't you why don't you start us off? Tell us what what is your favorite Christmas story? Well, uh, my favorite Christmas um, story is uh, the story of George Bailey at Bedford Falls. And um, well, what is the line at the end? It says, he's not poor who has friends, um, something like that. And so that's what, my favorite uh, Christmas movie for sure. I am reading right now. I, I think this might qualify as something of a Christmas movie. It was released around this time for a reason. It's uh, a book by, it just came out called Once Upon a Wardrobe by an author named Patty Callahan. That's a a historical fiction about uh, a girl who is at Oxford, whose brother is back at home and very sick. And she goes to visit with C.S. Lewis and his brother Warney and ask about where did Narnia come from? Um, and so uh, it has, it has some, something of a Christmas element to it, I think. Uh, but um, yeah, that would be, I, I'm enjoying that right now, but I, I just think it's hard to beat. Um, it's a wonderful life in terms of Christmas movies. Mm-hmm. Adam, Christmas story. Um, I'm a big advocate for a Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens, but not any movie version. Read the book. What about the Muppets? It, yeah, well, you can watch the Muppets. <laughs> but um, yeah, read the book if you haven't read the book. Um, it's very easy to read easy to read as a family probably one of the most well-written books ever like it's certainly had you know it's certainly shaped how we celebrate christmas uh number one but there's a lot of good lines in the book that you just don't get from any movie um so i would highly recommend that um yeah and then as far as christmas movies our family always watches this movie called it happened on fifth avenue which is like a 1945 post-world war uh era movie about this like homeless guy who moves into a mansion every winter when the owner leaves it's just kind of funny so i'd recommend both of those robert oh yeah Mm. i mean i guess like i have so many favorite christmas movies i know that's like not the way you're supposed to do it but my so much of growing up, I remember, was um, every night having family movie night and watching a new Christmas movie, whether that was, you know, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or Frosty or Elf when it, that came out. And um, I remember seeing Elf in theaters, which when I look now at when it was made, makes me feel so old. Um, Can you believe it? Isn't it, wasn't it like 03? Yeah. It's yeah. going to be 20 years old, like in a couple of years. It's crazy. Um. I think though that one of my favorite memories from Christmas, and maybe this is a story, one of my favorite memories from Christmas was actually from college. Um, so I went to school up in Michigan and being a, a kid from Texas, um, we didn't get a lot of snow. And so I really enjoyed the snow that came uh, in Michigan. And sometimes we'd get lucky and, and have some snowfalls early in the fall uh, before we all left for Christmas. And so, uh, uh, and in college, you don't get a lot of opportunity to celebrate for Christmas because by December, 
by the time December rolls around, you're studying for midterms and then getting out of town. And so you don't really get that chance to really do Christmas with your, with your college friends. Um, well, one year we got a, a lucky uh, early bit of snowfall. I think it was like late October and it put me in, in the Christmas spirit. And of course, being uh, America, all the Christmas decorations were already out at the Walmart. Um, and so me and my friend uh, went and bought a bunch of Christmas decorations for our room and de- had it all decorated with, with lights and Christmas trees and ornaments. And we actually like wrapped up most of our furniture with ra- with Christmas wrapping paper. Um, and we had that done, I think right before Halloween. And so it was just fun to spend like a month and a half of college uh, before Thanksgiving celebrating Christmas. We made Christmas cards and passed them out to people. It was just a fun, fun time. Um, but probably, uh, my favorite sort of traditional Christmas story. Um, oh man, hard to beat Frosty the Snowman. Frosty Snowman's pretty good. Um, but probably Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer is my favorite because it includes the character Yukon Cornelius, who is, uh, the best Christmas character, uh, besides Jesus, of course. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's baby fun. Jesus. And then, you know, you got to go down a long ways, but then you, you eventually you hit Yukon Cornelius. I think, I think the chasm is infinite, but, but eventually it's the, <laughs> um, you know, I think a fun reformed and we'd have to find a studio that would do this for us, but I'm sure we could is a historical comedy about a man who loves Christmas, who moves into Calvin's Geneva with his family <laughs> to get John Calvin to set aside a special day for Christmas because uh, I'm not sure how well that would go over in Calvin's Geneva. Probably not. I always think of the, we talked about this at my uh, uh, church community group the other night of celebrating Advent or celebrating even Christmas. And we watched the clip from uh, The Simpsons uh, where, I don't know, with the, I really never watched a ton of The Simpsons, but remember the character who's the, the Scottish Presbyterian? And he goes on a rant about not celebrating holidays, not celebrated by the apostles. Um especially those named after the pagan gods, Yastra. And uh, I don't know what the pagan god of Christmas is, but I'm sure there's yeah. one. Yeah, gosh. I don't, well, I saw that clip also. You sent it to me. And I don't think that, I don't, it's not Willie, the groundskeeper. I think it's a, uh, um, it might be like a one-off guy, but he's an old <laughs> religion, Scottish. <laughs> which, an old uh, believer. An old believer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. That's that's my idea there. I would love to see that, you know, um, what, what 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 that would be like, and and uh, would really put Calvin in the like Scrooge role, though, right? I kind of think so. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't know. If, He's probably fine with it. I would have to find some. Uh, it'd have to be a Roman Catholic studio, or, <laughs> or uh, an Anglican studio, or something yeah. like that. Maybe it could be like a play where like, I don't know, Thomas Cranmer's like talking sense into him or something, you know, that works. There we go. I just want this made. All right. It just came to me, but I don't, you know, <laughs> let's figure out a way to get this. Let's make it happen. Make it happen. Well, as always, dear listener, we are so thankful uh, that you uh, uh, joined us today. Um, we especially wish you and your loved ones a very Merry Christmas um, and a Happy New Year. Uh, and with that, We'll see you guys again next time.